Wizards of the Coast buys D&D Beyond. We have a D&D Direct presentation this coming Thursday. I'm going to talk about the Kickstarter for Flea Mortals by MCDM. And we're going to take a look at Volo's Vetted Vendors, a DM's Guild product. This and Patreon questions on today's episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this and get access to all kinds of exclusive material and video previews and small city source books and all kinds of stuff, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. The link to become a patron is in the show notes below. I also want to talk about the Bundle of Holding. So I have partnered up with the with the fine folks at the Bundle of Holding to put out the Sly Flourish Lazy DM and Fantastic Adventures package. This is a package that contains eight PDFs. It's every book I've published in the past five years except the Lazy DM's Companion. Uh, the PDFs of them and the PDFs, map packs, all the digital, all the digital stuff that I have in one package. You can either pick up just the Lazy DM collection package, which is DM Tips, Lazy Dungeon Master, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and the workbook for six dollars. Six dollars for all of those books. Add increase it to about twenty dollars, and you get Ruins of the Grender Root, Fantastic Layers, Fantastic Adventures, and Fantastic Locations, all in PDF, all with VTT map packs, all with the digital accessories. It's about a hundred bucks. I think it's about a hundred dollars worth of PDFs that you're getting for twenty bucks. Right? This is by far, man, and so many people contribute, and I'm absolutely blown away by the support. So. It's a fantastic way to get all of these books. If you, if even if you only, if you have a couple, it's still a good deal because really the cost for the package is the cost of pretty much any one of the fantastic books and the art books together. You're getting four other or whatever it is, eight other books for a thing. So it's going on for a limited time. Get on it. Best way to get these books, and it won't be around forever. So thank you, thank you for that. Wizards of the Coast buying D and D Beyond is probably the biggest news in D and D certainly this year. It is huge news, and it is overwhelmingly fantastic news. So it, I, I'm, I, I couldn't be more excited about it. I'm really, really, really happy to see this. First of all, it's a great move for Wizards of the Coast, right? Before I, before I get started with my whole little rant here, myself and my friends, Teos Abadia, who goes by AlphaStream, and Sean Merwin, who run the Mastering Dungeons podcast, they invited me to talk with them yesterday, uh, Saturday, that was uh, April 16th, and we talked for an hour about these topics. So if you want to see myself and two of my two of my favorite two of my favorite friends and two awesome people that talk about D and D, we have it. And the link to that video they they were able they were very kind enough to allow me to record it and stream it and put it up on YouTube. So the video for that is available on YouTube. There's a link in the show notes below to watch an hour long talk about this. But I wanted to focus on a few highlights for for this show. So first of all, it's I think it's overwhelmingly awesome news. It's a great move for Wizards of the Coast. They're buying a product that already exists, that 10 million users apparently already using, that we've all seen, many of us love. You know, it's a known quantity, right? So instead of them trying to build something and hoping that they get it right and hoping that they get through the debugging and hoping that it works, they there is one that is already battle hardened and tested and they get to purchase that. So obviously a very good move for Wizards of the Coast. It is a tremendous and potentially critical move for D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is a third party program run by fandom was always at risk of like, what if Wizards decides they want to do this on their own and are they going to buy it and what happens to our company? Pretty much D&D Beyond would have died if Wizards of the Coast said, yeah, we're no longer going to put new books on there, or even we're not going to let you continue to license the books that we have. That would have been terrible. And that's that all matters, right? But really, it matters for one group in particular that I care about, which is us, 
right? Dungeon masters, the customers. And for the customers, this is also fantastic news because now you are not, when you license this stuff, remember you're never buying anything directly from them. You are licensing the right to use it. When you were purchasing that license, you were buying it from a third party who was dependent upon a first party to maintain that license. And if anything in the back end there got hosed up, if anybody decided something, they could have killed it. And we could have lost all of our stuff, right? All that license. It would have been a PR disaster. It would have been terrible for Wizards of the Coast. It would have been catastrophic for D&D Beyond. But it would have hurt for us. It would be really bad, right? And now we don't have to worry about that. When we are licensing material on D&D Beyond, we're getting that license from Wizards of the Coast, which is overwhelmingly good news. It means that we can be a lot more secure in knowing that the money that we have paid to D&D Beyond is, is going to continue to offer this product. It means it's good for the future. It's really, it's really strong. It builds a strong foundation for the future growth of 5e because it means there's a tool that's already up and running that we already use that many people really like that are, you know, that, that is going to be used clearly going to be used in the future. So I think that that's fantastic. The only little caveat is it's not great for third-party publishers, but it really wasn't great for third-party publishers anyway. Your groups like Cobalt Press or Monty Cook Games, myself, CDM, who we're going to be talking about, all of us are creating a lot of content that cannot go on the DMs Guild. Or sorry, cannot go on, on D&D Beyond, right? We can't publish it to D&D Beyond. And that's a problem. There's a couple of small things. Like I think Nerdarchy has like an encounter there, right? There's a couple of things. But we can probably expect that they're going to say, no, it's first party only. It's only the stuff that Wizards of the Coast is publishing is the only stuff that you're really going to have on there. And that's a problem for third party publishers. It means that we are restricted in the kind of material that we're going to see. It means like it's going to be harder for me to run Cobalt Press stuff. The reality is it was hard before, so it's not any worse, but it's certainly not going to get any better, right? So that's the one caveat I have. When I discussed this question on Twitter, when I've seen you know, discussions on my Discord server and other places where this came up, I, I saw kind of a, a few topics that came up a lot. One was, didn't Wizards of the Coast already own D&D Beyond? Like a lot of people believed that Wizards of the Coast already owned it. I had friends who were shocked that it wasn't. It's so heavily branded by D&D stuff. They just assumed it was Wizards of the Coast. So that was certainly an interesting standpoint. And it kind of talks to why it was a really good deal for Wizards to buy it because they thought they already owned it, right? Well, the next big thing was, great, this means we'll finally be able to get digital and physical bundles together. So either we're going to get the digital version for free, I don't think you're going to, or I don't think we're going to, uh, or there might be some kind of coupon. There is a precedent for the idea of a coupon. They did this with the D&D Essentials kit. You can get the Player's Handbook for half off, I think, and you can get the full digital copy of the digital of the D&D Essentials Adventures from D&D Beyond. So there is a precedent for this. So maybe some products that are box sets. I have big questions about like how they would do it physically. Like, do they include it in a book? And can people steal the code and all kinds of stuff? So we'll see. I wouldn't hold my breath on that. But you might. Yeah, I think you might see it for box sets. I would not be surprised to see it for the starter set and things like that. Some, you know, places to onboard people. But, but with each book, like if you buy, you know, whatever, the new book, will you be able to get a coupon to get it for low price? I think they'll just put stuff on sale and then everybody has an opportunity to get it. What about a virtual tabletop? Are they going to include one? I almost certainly think they're going to include a virtual tabletop. I don't know when. I yeah, Maybe probably within. I, I don't think we will see it like in three months, but it wouldn't surprise me if we saw it in a year or maybe two. Obviously, they're going to want to put a VTT in there. And I think that this helps pave the way for that, but we'll have to see. In the meantime, I love my Owlbear Rodeo. I was just showing Owlbear Rodeo before the show. And then the next question was, well, what about Roll20? Are you going to buy, are they going to buy Roll20? I think I would, I would highly doubt they're going to buy it because Roll20 is a much bigger mess than D&D Beyond is. It, half of it is run, like it means you're, that means you're supporting Pathfinder players, right? It means you're supporting all these other RPGs. But what does it mean for Roll20? And I've seen some people, comments back that I saw on the show that Sean and Teos and I did, 
I saw people who are like, yeah, but now I feel even less secure about this stuff that I have in Roll20. And that's a good point. Like, I don't use Roll20, so I don't really think about it that much. But certainly, like, at Roll20, would Wizards pull the license from other third parties like Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds and say we're not going to have our 5e main content in there? I hope they don't. I don't think it would be quite as catastrophic as D&D Beyond because D&D Beyond was all D&D. And Roll20 is, you know, like, the fact that it has... D&D content in it is important. I don't think it's as critical because that's primarily a VTT. And there's already other tools like Beyond 20. There's questions about like, will tools like Beyond 20 continue to work? Good question, right? Will wizards change their policies on this? There's a lot of question marks. I really don't know the answer to it, but I recognize that people that bought a lot of their material on Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds that was licensed are still in the same boat that we were all in when D&D Beyond was not owned by wizards. That said, I don't think wizards is going to buy D&D Beyond. I don't think I don't think Wizards is going to buy Roll Twenty like they did with the Indie Beyond. We're probably going to learn some new stuff on the 21st of April. That's this coming Thursday. There is an event called D&D Direct, and we don't really know a lot about it other than they are going to be showing off lots of different things. I talked about this also with T- Sean and Teos. So in the show notes, you can see the Mastering Dungeons hour-long episode where we talk about all this kind of stuff, and. They're going to announce some stuff, and some of it will be RPG stuff. It's going to be books, movies, video games, role-playing games, entertainment. So they're trying to do it all, right? And this is something that I say that Wizards of the Coast is really, really good at, really, really good at marketing all this stuff. And they want to build this lifestyle brand. They want to show you that, hey, you can watch your D&D TV show, and you can play your D&D video game, and you can wear your D&D t-shirt, and you can play your D&D RPG, right? And But a lot of us, I'm, I'm focused on the RPG aspects. I don't really... The, the other parts of it are not really what I like to focus my attention on. I like to focus on the RPG products. So we'll see what kind of RPG products they announce. I'm certain they're going to announce stuff. I, I gave my predictions on the Mastering Dungeons podcast. I hate to be making predictions because I think predictions are, are mostly a foolish enterprise. So if you care to hear what my predictions are, you can watch that episode. I'm not going to bring them up here, but I think some things will be confirmed. Flea Mortals is the latest Kickstarter by by MCDM. MCDM is the company run by Matt Coville, my friend James Intercasso, friend and collaborator. Oh my God, they're at $1.3 million. I had no idea. I knew they broke a million. I didn't know they got the $1.3 million. Wow. Huge Kickstarter, right? 16,000 backers of this. Flea Mortals is the MCDM monster book, right? This is MCDM's take on the monster book. And specifically, and if you watch the video, he goes into it, their hope is to build a book that could act as a replacement for the monster manual. So it's not just a bunch of new monsters that like like Cobalt Press. Like if you go and buy uh, any of the Toma Beasts or Creature Codex from Cobalt Press, they do not cover the same, they're not recreating the goblin. They might have special new goblins. They might have a lot of special, but they don't have like, here's our red dragon. They just have new dragons, right? So their thought is that it's supplementary to the monster manual. MCDM has taken a different approach. MCDM is basically saying, we're going to look at the core monsters from the monster manual and we are going to build new versions of them built around the style that, Matt Colville and that MCDM follows, right? So if you listen to it, they really say, you know, Matt Colville has this whole thing. You can you can listen to his whole thing. And it is it is what I refer to as an opinionated RPG product. And I mean this in an absolutely good way. There's lots and lots of opinionated. My material, everything I've written and put out is an opinionated RPG product. I have a point of view when I look at 5e. I have a point of view when I look at role-playing games. And in my material, I focus on that point of view to try to make that style that I enjoy as applicable to everybody as possible. So the Lazy DM's Companion, the Return of the Lazy DM, all the Lazy DM books certainly follow this. And even the fan, and, and all the fantastic books that I put out. They are opinionated products. It means that I don't have to worry about trying to hit everybody. 
I don't have to make a universal product that's useful to all different styles of play. Instead, I can say I have a particular style of play that I think works really well and that I like, and I'm going to write for that style of play. It's the difference between like the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons and the book Dungeon World. Dungeon World is an opinionated RPG. It's actually the first time I I really got this idea was this is an opinionated RPG book. It is an RPG book designed to feel a certain way. 5e Hardcore Mode by Runehammer Games. I talked about them before. They wrote an opinionated RPG product that's like we have a specific style of play that we like and we want to do that. That's what MCDM is doing with Flea Mortals. Matt Colville has a very particular point of view about his approach for 5e. And he's he is he is leading, he's, he's designing a book. James Intercastle is the lead for the book that follows that philosophy. And that philosophy is core typical 5e monsters are boring, right? Now, I think he is overweighting that. But I could also be biased because I don't think they're boring, right? I When I look at a standard goblin stat block in 5e, I've never said, you know what? That goblin stat block is so boring. I hate it, right? I've never I've never said that because like my, my feeling, if a monster is, you know, I'm gonna make, here's Mike, Mike Shea's opinion. If you run a monster and it's boring, it's not the monster's fault, right? Like if you run a fire giant and the giant, I, I bring up fire giants because I love, I love fire giants, right? If you bring up a fire giant, if you if you look at a fire giant and you're like, that's a boring monster, there's so many other things you could do to make sure that it's exciting without having to like add a bunch of new tactical features to it, right? And what we've seen in other editions of the game, and I know the feedback came from fourth edition that like you make them too complicated, DMs forget it or they don't know how to run it, right? So there's, there's definitely that issue. So I know where he's coming from. And that's why I say it's like an opinionated book. I don't think that this book is for everybody. I would, I would, I would think, and it's not going to happen, so we don't have to worry. I would not, I don't think it would be good for the health of the game if this book actually did replace the monster manual for everybody, right? I think the current monster manual, by and large, it's got its issues, certainly. But by and large, you, you want to keep monsters simple enough that, that new DMs, that DMs who are not super experienced, super tactical, but playing for 30 years can run them. And I can tell you, like, I look at, you know, the, the Lich is a complicated monster, right? And it's a lot. So I, I don't know that I, I, I know where he's coming from. And he starts off with a video where he says something like, I don't know about you, but I think D&D monsters are boring. And I think he's that I don't know about you part, right, is there probably are a lot of people, myself included, who are like, I don't think they're boring. I don't think monsters are boring. In fact, when I look at the problems that D&D monster design has right now, the low tier is not where I think the problem is. I don't think we needed more complicated goblins or, or more tactically goblins. I think it's that tier two and up, you know, CR three plus. That's where the problems are. And specifically higher CR where they're just not holding their own, right? And I think that's where the good news is we're getting all of it. And the reality is I'm totally behind this book. I am eager I am eager for this book to come out. I am eager to buy it. I actually really like the approach that they're taking with this, which is when you back this Kickstarter, you're not just getting, you know, you're not going to just wait a couple of years and get a book. You are going to get packages of monsters in PDF sent to you to use, try out, provide feedback on. So you, it, you're a little bit of part of the playtest package, except I know they are doing other playtesting internally. One thing I'll say about MCDM, and this is somebody who's written for MCDM, right, is they playtest the hell out of their stuff. They have on staff play. They have pay, they have play testers that they pay to play, right? So they have professional play testers. They have a play test coordinator who's a full time person that manages play testing. They and then they have a much larger group of volunteer play testers who test stuff. They do multiple rounds of play testing. And I can tell you, as a writer, it's hard because like you get multiple rounds of feedback that you have to incorporate in your stuff. I've 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 now you know I've now been through this a couple of times. So. 
so I know this stuff is going to be well tested, and that that is something that I'm 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 really excited about. I like the the iterated approach, and I can't wait for it. But let's actually let's let's you know why don't we uh, take a look at it? So it offers a 26 page preview that you can go and download and check out right now, and I recommend you do it and you take a look at them and decide if you want to get it. I backed it. I told I backed it immediately. I didn't I didn't even think about it, and I think you know, somebody brought up that it's a forty dollars for the yeah seventy bucks gets you the hardcover and the PDF. Somebody brought up that like forty bucks. I think it was forty bucks for the PDF something like that. And they said like, that's a lot, but boy, you are getting it. You're going to get a lot of material for that $40, right? That's a, it's a, it's not a 64 page supplement. You're getting a lot of stuff and it's going through a lot of work. One question that came up was the fact that their, their goal was 600,000, right? A $600,000 goal, more than a half a million dollar goal. And I asked them about this and the answer is that's kind of how much it's going to cost them to make it because they have full-time staff making this book. Right, that this is not, they're not just freelancing art. They're, I mean, it, they're going to be freelancing art. They're going to be, they're going to, you know, but when you think about the full time staff that are going to be working on this book continually, it's actually going to cost them that much money. So when you think about a $40, you know, when you're paying 40 bucks to basically get the value of $600,000 worth of work, more, more than that now, because they're expanding the material they're putting on based on the goals, that's actually about right, you know, so that's worth considering that, that, that there's, they're not inflate. That's not an inflated. Could you make a book like this cheaper? You could, but not the way they're making it, right? Not with full-time staff, not with the amount of effort, not with the amount of playtesting, you know, not with the kind of pay that they are paying their freelancers and their artists, which is above the industry, way above the high end of the industry standard. They pay, they pay people very, very well to make, to work on this stuff. So, you know, it's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating to see. So the preview has, you know, I mean, like, look, the, the preview is like a product itself, right? Like you could see this being a thing. So you have James Intercasso talking about it. James is the, the lead, which fills me with great joy. James is a very good friend of mine and a fantastic designer. I've now worked with him professionally on a bunch of different projects, and he is absolutely the right guy to do this. I do not envy the amount of work he is going to have to do. Monster books, from what I have heard, I've never done one, but monster books are the hardest books to make of all of the RPG books. They cost the most and they take the most amount of work of any kind of RPG product you're going to make. They're, they're, they're tremendously hard. So they have a lot of things. They, they, they now have roles, right? So they have challenge ratings and roles. And I know that ma- many of the philosophies that are in here are actually fourth edition D&D philosophies that they're putting into fifth edition. There's a lot of people who want that kind of stuff. I'm not really one of them, right? And like I said, I'm on board and I think it'd be fine. But, you know, I've got, I've got, there's, there's reasons why. It's not like, I'm just, you know, I don't want to do this stuff. I, I designed a lot for fourth edition. I know a lot about fourth edition. But there's a reason why I was never really big on the roles, even though many people like them. I, I don't like them because I think they're cookie cutter. I think that it makes encounter building completely based on mechanics and tactics and not at all in the, not a, I want to say not at all in the story. But you're always like, oh, I just need to put these pieces in to make every encounter feel a certain way. It's sort of like everything being a battle box from Gears of War. Right, like, oh, we got to have our terrain, and we got to have our weird thing that happens, and we got to have a certain set of monsters, and they have to have certain types. It makes everything a little bit too paint by numbers for my comfort. When I really think that's a, I, I'm my opinion, right, is that I like to watch the monsters flow into the narrative based on the story that's taking place first, not what kind of mechanical ability they bring to the table when you run them. I think it's definitely important when you want to run a battle like that. Right, which is why I think this is a great supplementary book to the Monster Manual. I don't think it. I don't think it. For me, it's not the. It's not going to replace the Monster Manual. One of my patrons asked that question. Like, is this going to replace? Do you think it's going to replace the Monster Manual? So here's an example. Right, uh, the Goblin Assassin. Right, so the Goblin Assassin is a CR one half. Right, but look at the amount of material it's got uh, for a CR one half monster. 
it's got you know, this whole backstab ability, right? When, in which it stabs, it does extra damage, plus it does this bleed, and, and bleeding creatures essentially get bleed tokens and then start to take damage based on the number of bleed tokens they have. Uh, you have a, a, a goblin assassin can summon shadows. Does that feel like a, go- like a, 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 a CR one half goblin? has actual magical capabilities right so that's so they're they're certainly rich and there's certainly room for it the question is does the story behind a goblin assassin explain why and i'm i'm, I'm sure we're not seeing it right like but does it explain why they can summon shadows like you know a human being can't summon shadows right a, a, a brigand can't a bandit captain can't summon shadows why can this goblin assassin summon shadows what have they done if they're like crazy tattooed like ritualistic you know things happen to these goblin assassins that make them be able to do this you know i can kind of buy it but it doesn't feel like your standard stabby stabby goblin when you have things like summoning shadows right that's a that's a magical ability you know the curse spitter i can certainly see curse spitter is sort of your goblin goblin spellcastery type you have your goblin boss they're all relatively low cr though right but look the, the stat blocks for them are big right goblin assassins conjure darkness made from the souls of their victims okay cool right they said, they said look to the left mike there's a whole thing about goblin goblin assassins there and yeah like goblin assassins conjure darkness made from the souls of their victims while goblin curse bitters hurl magic so that's that's interesting but like how many victims have they had at their cr one half right like i don't know so the idea of like we're going to take goblins and make them less boring, sure, and they are, and it works. I don't know, interesting. So lots of different voice. There's a lot of goblins in here. So then we get into an interesting thing, which is the goblin minion, and there is I think about two and a half pages of information about how to run minions in the MCDM style. This is something that like James Intercastle and I talked a lot about. You know, because I have my approach for minions, and there's lots of different approaches on how do you handle minions, how do you handle hordes of monsters, right? And this is one approach, which is essentially there is now a minion stat block, right? And the minion stat block has certain things it does, like this tiny stab. When a visible enemy starts to turn within five feet of three or more goblin minions, the enemy must succeed on a dex saving throw or take a piercing damage for each of the minions that are around. Essentially, they're stabbing at you. But rather than having them all roll attacks all the time, which I think you still do because they still have actions. So they're still poking you twice. You are also rolling a saving throw to see if you take damage from all the minions that are on you. So you're sort of taking damage from minions twice. Brings up a question of like, are they actually more complicated than a, just a bunch of goblins? I don't know, right? But pretty interesting. And then there's also, but but along with having a set stat block for goblin minions, is there's also a bunch of rules about how to run minions. How are they affected when they take damage? Which is really interesting because it's they they have this idea of of a min, minion attribute, which essentially says. You don't actually track damage done to a minion, even though it has hit points. The hit points is actually a damage threshold. And essentially, any hit against a minion kills it with one hit. Any failed saving throw that would do damage knocks out a minion, regardless of how much damage it does. But any any damage that isn't from those sources, anything that isn't a direct attack against a minion with an attack roll or a saving throw, essentially does zero damage to the minion unless it does up to its threshold of six. And if it does six, then it kills it. That way you're not tracking damage done to the minions. There's never any hit point tracking, right? It's just, you know, every time, like, and that's that's to prevent, like, a, a wizard casting magic missile firing off five missiles that do only, like, two or three points of damage each but killing five minions. Instead of that happening, you, you would have to focus them all on, on one or a couple on one and hope you get to at least six to knock out a minion, right? So it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting approach. It's it's pretty crunchy, right? There's a lot of like 
and in, in when you look at the minion rules, kind of at the, I think at the end of the document, let's see, let's go to page 25-ish. So when you go to the back of the PDF, page 22 to 25-ish, is where it has all of the rules for how minions work. It talks about the fact that they don't roll for damage, that it's static damage. They A lot of it is the flaws. So it's not all rules. It's not like you need to memorize all of this stuff. But it talks about overkill attacks, the idea that if you if you hit and you do enough damage to kill a minion, the next, and, and let's say you do enough damage to kill two minions, both of them die. You can you can sweep your sword. But then there's a lot about like range. Like it should only do it if it makes sense. They don't do the 13th age style where it doesn't matter if two minions are 20 feet away. If you kill this one over here, the damage will still go to the one over there. You describe why, all right? They don't They don't really take that approach. It's like, no, it's gotta be a, one that's in a same similar area and things like that. They have sort of like how to do group saves that basically you can you can do a save for four, you know, four minions at a time rather than one. So so that kind of works. They talk about how to like put group attacks together that you 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 add a plus one bonus and then add their damage for for them. They have optional rules for a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of crunchy stuff with minions. And it's all very cool. And again, opinionated product, right? I think we should all be trying out different things. I love to see publishers who are putting out stuff. They're doing a lot of they're focusing a lot of attention on it. They are they're play testing the hell out of it to see this kind of stuff work. But I think we're going to see different approaches, right? I think if we look at like level up 5e, <clears throat> man, if we look at level up 5e, they have a different approach for minions, which is essentially building a bigger monster stat block that grows the more minions are in it and then kind of explodes when it hits a certain amount of damage. So there's a lot of different approaches. You know, I, of course, I like my approach. What I'm happy about is I have an approach from for horde, running hordes in the Lazy Games Companion, which just was published. And I still like that better than this. I'm glad I do, because if I didn't, I'd be putting out a book <laughs> with something like, oh, they did it better. Now, I think there's definitely people who are going to look at this and prefer this, right? I like mine because it's dirt simple and it runs with any number of monsters, right? I can, I can, I can, I can do a thousand skeletons and not have a problem, right? This one, they say like, well, you probably don't want to run too many monsters. Well, mine's like, I hey, can run as many as you want. It doesn't get any harder. Mine will scale as, as many monsters as you want. If you had 10,000 goblins attacking, your party would die. Unless like they could find a choke point, but I could run 10,000 goblins. And if you, if you did an area of attack, let's say, here's an example, you know, I'm going to show off my own thing, right? You're standing on a hilltop. You're a 20th level wizard, right? There's 10,000 orcs rushing up. So you're G Gandalf standing at Helm's Deep, right? And you're 20th level Gandalf standing at the front of Hel Helm's Deep and 10,000 uh, orcs are descending. You know, it's pretty straightforward. And you cast Meteor Swarm. Right. And you're like, meteors are going to come arcing down. Well, the answer is they kill all of them. Right. It's really easy. Like if he if, if Gandalf casts meteor swarm and kills all and manages to have any orc in its area of effect, it's going to wipe them all out. But even if you were like, well, what if you just started throwing fireballs? You're like, OK, he can hit 50 or 60 at a time with a fireball and they are going to if uh, and one quarter of them are going to make their saving throw. But then even still, you're like, yeah, but they're probably going to die even if they make their save. So they're just gone. So it's very, very simple. There's there are simple ways to handle mass combat with mass things that don't require two and a half pages of rules. That said, I'm very happy to see different approaches on this. This book also has sort of a replacement for the beholder, which is really interesting. Like talk about a, a gutsy move of making a beholder replacement in an SRD product. They call it like, you know, I what are they what is it what is it called? Observer. And they have a couple different ones, right? So they have the overmind, they call it, which is clearly beholdery, right? It's different because it doesn't have eye tentacles, but it's a big eye beast, right? And then they have a named one uh called Zoranox, right? Who is more of your solo, CR14 solo. And it's got some interesting stuff in here. There again there's a, some things I question like the charm beam 
you know, I don't think that I don't think that the charm beam is great. It's it's probably good out of combat, but in combat it's so lame because it's like you can charm a guy, that person cannot does not make a saving throw at the end of turns, cannot be broken, but any harm done to that creature or their allies, which is pretty much anything that this monster is going to do. So it's like a dead we have this one eye beam that's like a dead beam, right? It really you would not want to use it. And I I think when we're trying to get to this idea of like why would you ever put something in a stat block that you don't want to use in combat? The very first one is one where I look at it and I go, would, would we want, you know, why would you ever want to use the charm beam? And maybe I don't get it, but it's like, I'm kind of, you know, I think I'm a relatively, I'm certainly in the average of smart DMs, right? I'm certainly in the average of DMs. I don't understand what I'm trying to do with that. And if I read that and I don't understand, like I'm not the most tactical player in the world, but there's definitely things where I'm like, exactly how does that work? Like one of the, ex the things is painful resistance that Xanarox can destroy one of his eyes as a, essentially like a legendary resist, right? He can, you know, he can destroy a floating eye and succeed instead. If an eye is destroyed, a new eye pops up out of the Xanathar's face and replaces it at the end of his next turn. So it basically just gets rid of an eye for one turn, right? Okay, I guess, right? I guess that's enough, right? But then he, you know, does he only get to, if an, if an eye is destroyed, a new eye pops up. Does that mean if three eyes are destroyed, three eyes pop up? I don't know. So lots of, you know, lots of questions like this. But this is the sort of stuff that happens up in testing. So that is Flea Mortals. I'm very excited for it. I still, I, I love the idea. I'm, 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 I'm not sure that I totally agree with the marketing angle of Wizards of the Coast monsters are boring and we need to do this because it's been seven years and the game's more popular than it's ever been. I don't, I think if monsters all sucked, I don't think it would be here, but you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with the book. I'm going to back it. I already backed it. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for it. So I think it's, I think it's very, very cool. So check out Flea Mortals. So let's talk about Volo's Vetted Vendors. Volo's, let me get through some windows here. Boo, doo, doo, doo. Volo's Vetted Vendors is a source book by T.M. Van Dalen, who is a friend of mine that I talk with in some of our RPG developer chats. And it's got a bunch of different designers, including Jeff Stevens, another friend of mine. And it is a book, a 68-page book available on the DMs Guild for 10 bucks for the PDF. It actually has a print version, too. Print versions are rare to come by uh, on the DMs Guild because you got to get special approval to get a print version of the book. And it is a book of 20 different shops and shopkeepers that are set in, in the Forgotten Realms. They're set in 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 you know, in the world, but can be dropped into any of your own worlds too. So each of the vendors, and they generally are on a two-page spread, each of the vendors and their stores have a set place that they exist in the Forgotten Realms, but also say, or you can set it anywhere near. So an example location, any remote cave, location of the Forgotten Realms on the ocean floor near Icewind Dale, right? Very cool. This is a dragon's, a dragon's or an ancient copper dragon who's like, sells you stuff, right? Every one of them also has like hooks, you know, for role, uh, big discussions about role playing. Like, how do you role play this vendor? And they, they have this, I love this idea of, of horde drama. What is something, what is some like dramatic occurrence that exists that can turn this, that, that can turn this vendor into an adventure or a short quest or something like that, right? So every one of them kind of has this cool layout. Uh, the layout is very cool, very, very clean layout, very much in the style of the Wizards of the Coast layout that we see. Uh, beautiful art, nice big, like, you know, big quarter page art, two page spreads, you know, neat, neat pictures, really, really, a really good looking book, you know, for 10 bucks for a bunch of different vendors, including NPC traits that you could use and for price lists, things that you want to buy. This is something that there's always a question. If you want to make your shopping episodes a little bit more exciting, this, this is a great product. 
a great product to do this. I like ham bones, right? Any large city or the trade ward of Waterdeep, right? Really cool. Fits well in your own campaign world. Fits well if you're running Forgotten Realms. Has lots of good stuff. When I look at products, I, I actually gave a talk on Thursday. I think it was Thursday. I gave a talk about this was to a class that was doing a class on writing for RPGs. And I was talking about the, the importance of making sure that you write products that you're where you're helping the DM, where you're helping your your customer. And this is a product that helps us. When I buy this, it's not just floofy descriptions of a store, right? It's giving me things I can use. It's giving me drama that I can drop in. It's giving me price lists that I can use. It's giving me traits to role play the character. It's giving me things that I can that I can use and things that I would not want to just whip up on my own. I can make a shop and I can role play a character, but this gives me more stuff that I don't want to do. And that's where my 10 bucks goes. So I'm I'm happy to recommend this product. Again, it's Volo's Vetted Vendors. You can pick it up on the DMs Guild. There is a link in the show notes below to pick it up. Really cool product and, and really nails this idea of the kind of product that is helping me run my games. So check that out. Let's talk about some patron questions. Every week, so every month I put out a comment, I put out a post on the Sly Flourish Patreon asking for people to, to post their uh, questions. And I take those questions. Some of the, I answer every question on Patreon. Some of those questions make their way into this show. And then some of them I actually break out and turn into separate videos. So uh, this is where, where we are at. Matt R says, I am currently run Ruins of the Grunderoo campaign. Thank you so much. And my players are loving the setting. In order to make it feel like things aren't coming out of nowhere, I've tried to seed a few things in the setting that the, player, uh, that the players encounter that prep them for adventures that will come later. In this case, finding an old journal written by Artist Fane. But I find that my players are latching onto those little nuggets and want to try to immediately follow them to a conclusion. So here's my question. How can I effectively seed ideas that will come in the future, that will come in future adventures without throwing my current adventure into chaos? How can I foreshadow events to come without them taking over the game before my players are ready for them? It's a good question. Like when do you, you know, if you want to like again, seed future quest ideas, what do you do with them? And, and, and there's, a, there's a few things. One is if you, if you make it clear to them that there are no further paths for them to take with this thing, they get this tome, right? They found the tome of Artist Fane and they're studying and they're reading it and they're learning things, but they're not learning about where to go next. Or they know that like, oh, if only I could find somebody that could translate this ancient text, but nobody I talk to knows what this text is. And I found no primer on it, right? And there's, there's just no other path they can take with that thing. If you make that clear to them and you can say, and I'm a big fan of just, just telling the players things, right? Like tell, don't show, just tell. <laughs> tell, don't show is the new Sly Flourish D&D tip. <laughs> Which is, boy, that's a terrible one. Like if I put that on Twitter, I would have a lot of angry people. But the idea is just tell them sometimes. Like tell them, like you don't think there's any more information you can get from this tome right now, right? You don't think that anybody else is gonna be able to pick up stuff from this. Or you don't think you're gonna be able to get any more information from this. There's a lot of times where you can just kind of say this. And an example is in, I've been playing Horizon Forbidden West, which I think is now my new favorite RPG. I think I like it better than Witcher 3, which was my next favorite RPG. But Forbidden West is a beautiful game. It's the best game I've ever played. I just loved it. My wife was watching me play it and liked it so much she bought a Forbidden West sweatshirt that she wears, right? We adore, adore this game. It's beautiful and vibrant and glorious and it's and the diversity of the characters is wonderful and the way it treats everybody and everything with respect how it treats mental illness all kinds of stuff gorgeous and action is great the monsters are huge immense beautiful beautiful game yeah and i am playing it on the playstation 5 yeah and, and it's just 
It's everything I could want in a video game. And one of the things it does really well is Aloy, your main character, will tell you when there's nothing more you can do. So you'll go to a certain area. She'll be like, yeah, I don't think I have what I need to be able to figure this out. Right? And she just says it. Right? She's talking to herself, but she's telling you, yeah, you could sit around wasting your time jumping on crates. You're not going to get anywhere here because it turns out you need this other thing that you'll get later on. There was one where it's one of the big tall necks that, you know, there's a tall neck you run into and there's just no way to get on, on top of it. Right. And she says like, I don't think I'm going to be, able, I don't, I don't think there's anything around here that's going to let me get on that. Right. And she just says it. We DMs can do that. You know, you are, you are, you know, there's a lot of things we can tell players. Like this is probably a good article on itself. I'm going to keep this one around because I want to do an article called, you know, when things to tell your players, <laughs> right? Tell them it's a legendary monster. So then they're not upset when they cast a spell and they cast legendary resistance. Tell them it's legendary. So they're not going to blow their, their big spells on stuff that is going to go that way, right? Tell your players when they're facing creatures that are definitely beyond their combat capability. Just tell them, right? Like their, their characters know it. So this is one where I think you can just tell them, right? You know, I, I like it. Yeah, tell, don't show. You will see that article in the future. You'll probably see a YouTube video about it. Fantastic topic. Thank you, Matt. Josh W., I have started to get stumped by how to handle augury. I have a player who is a, uh, leaning heavy into the character's divination capabilities. Circle the stars druid. Hey, somebody's not circle the moon. The campaign we're playing in is definitely a play to see what happens style of sandbox. I'm struggling with, uh, struggle with answering wheel or woe when I have no idea what will happen. It's a good point. It makes sense in a dungeon crawling. It makes sense in dungeon crawling, but what about complex urban campaigns where all social interactions have numerous consequences? Have any ideas about how to answer augury spells with nuance and not make them too powerful of a divination spell? Well, there is things in the world where like when you have something like that, it can it can matter. But then there's also like where who's answering the augury is a question. And what do they know, right? They can't like gods can't tell the future. I don't think, right? Gods aren't going to know where things happen. They can only they can only answer. And I think the wheel and woe, it's augury, right? Let's take a look at the spell. Let's take a look at the spell on Wizards of the Coast's D&D Beyond website. Which, by the way, has rolled consistently lower for me ever since Wizards of the Coast bought it. It's my little joke. So it only tells you good or bad, right? By casting the gem laid six action, the DM chooses the following. The spell doesn't take into account any possible circumstances that might change the outcome. So it only tells you way things are now. And things can change. So you could, you know, if you, you, and you probably, again, just talk to your players and tell them the kinds of things you're going to be able to get in this. Is there a great danger in this next chamber? You know, you probably know that. But like, am I on the path of great danger or not? Right? What? Where are the, you know, where do you think things going? And also keep in mind, you can only do it you can, it's relatively limited, but yeah, there's a lot of things that it can't take place. So I, I don't have a perfect, I don't have a perfect answer to this question other than, you know, you, you can, you can talk to your players about what kind of information they're actually able to get from this and explain like some of it's because I don't know, right? I don't know what's going on yet. So the gods don't know either. All right. I think that, I think that that is one, one way to do it. So Josh, I would recommend talking to your players about what the limitations are of the kind of answers they're going to get and make sure they understand what kind of answers they're going to get. And remember that the further out they go, the less likely they are to, to be able to get accurate answers. So that can work. John B says, I am an avid fan of Raging Swan Press. Me too. I have lots of Raging Swan Press books right over there on my big, my big shelf. I love their stuff. Thanks for pointing them out. Not sarcasm. I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't take it as such. Now I find myself drowning in dressings. Yes, dressings, backdrops, villages, villains, layers, etc. While I enjoy consuming the content, I sometimes find using them for session prep a bit non-lazy. 
Yes. Uh, very useful for medium effort pre-populating an open world. Do you have any good procedure for integrating this style of third-party content into your lazy session prep? I don't. The, the, the best thing that I can do is if I look at the kind of stuff I'm prepping and ask myself, is there a good source that is really rich with the kind of information for this particular setting? The example was when I was running the city of Eston in my Eberron game. It was a ruined way is a, a ruined city and a, a dead city that was filled with constructs from the last war it was like the big place where the r&d and construction of many different constructs in the last war took place so i was like this is a perfect place for a lot of stuff from arcana of the ancients and beasts of flesh and steel for money cook games so i went directly to those sources and used it so especially with stuff one thing about raging swan press is they put out tons of material and it's all very small so Raging Swan Press does have some bigger books that cover like urban and wilderness and dungeon settings, right? And I those are my three and they're, they're three most popular books that they produce. And they're my three favorite books that they produce because they're good meaty books. They're not too huge, but they're good and meaty, but I can look at it just for wilderness stuff, right? If I'm going to run some wilderness travel, I can grab that book and run some wilderness travel. So keeping track of the stuff that you are bringing in and remembering what you have so that, you know, if I'm going to run a village and I want to run some interesting village stuff, which products should I go take a look at? That's not a bad way to go. I don't, I'm not a big fan of like categorizing all your stuff. You can do it, but it's going to take a lot of time and that's time potentially better spent elsewhere. But yeah, my, my best bet, my, my best recommendation is, you know, every time you get a new product, I get tons, right? I have, I have literally thousands of RPG products. I give it enough of a read to try to remember, oh yeah, don't I have a book about that? Isn't there a thing? Right? And sometimes I just forget and, and that's that's life. But yeah, this is a big issue. This is where I get into that, like reducing your tool set is a, a, an important part of lazy dungeon mastering. You don't want to have everything in front of you. It's the reason why the Lazy DM's Companion is only 64 pages and many of the things that are in it are only one page. And it's to try to make sure that I didn't overdo it. I didn't want to have too much stuff that you lost track of what you had. I want to just enough stuff to, to really answer a lot of questions and, and answer things directly without having too much, right? It's easy to get to, you know, it's easy to have too much stuff to, to help you with your prep. Absolutely. Tim J, how do you handle curses in D&D games beyond the levels where remove curse becomes a thing? I feel like the spell voids their impact, but banning the spell seems like a cheap and lame solution to me. I think curses can be fun. So not all curses can be cured with remove curse. There are many curses that are kind of smaller, lower, longer term curses. And you could say like remove curse will could could kind of get rid of it for a time, but but it's going to come back, right? You, you, you can add some fuzziness to this. You don't want to hose the players though, right? And some curses, you know, and, and any of the, like the published curses, remove curse should probably get rid of it. An example is like a Vargul. You know, if a Vargul bites you, you are now cursed and your head's going to rip off and turn into a Vargul. You probably want to have remove curse help in that circumstance, right? You, you know, but you can, there's certainly like longer, lower, lower risk. Like they're, they're not just going to hose your character, but it's a thing that they're carrying and remove curse just isn't working, right? I think that that's a safe thing to do from a storytelling perspective. You know, I think it's, I you know, I think that there are definitely ways to treat different levels of curses, many of which can be cured with remove curses, a reason why the spell exists, but then other curses that are just like you can't do or remove curses. So yeah, somebody brings up the thing like, what if, what if you only, what if, what if remove curse was only one component and you needed to do other things to get rid of the curse as well? So yeah, you can think of ranges of curses. I don't think that's out of can. The main thing is don't screw your players, right? Don't, don't, 
don't you don't want to do something where like you're taking away an ability that they have and then remove curse won't get it back it's like do it for things that like affect them from a story perspective but don't affect the mechanics of their character because that really can get can get lame if you remove the, the effects of their characters ed t says how how far is too far when letting players ingenuity become more important than the rules i.e. a player can attempt to do things included but not limited to emulating feats modifying spells on the fly taking more movement directions sometimes at a cost or detriment i think the easy way to 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 put some reins on this first of all you can say no right the whole idea like oh it should be yes and all the time no you can say no you can definitely say no you can the other one is you can look at are there mechanical things in the game that are allowing this thing if there are then that's the way that you do it Right. And this, this, there was some talk about like in the second edition day, the minute they put certain focus skills on there, that meant no one else could do it. Like if a rogue can pick locks, that meant no one else could pick a lock. Right. It was things like that. So you can always decide, you can always adjudicate that. No, in this case, because of this circumstance, you can do this thing that only this other character can do. But like taking an extra attack, you always have the capability to say, sure, you're able to do that this time. Right. Because of the circumstance, you can do it this time. But there are definitely, it's definitely within your purview to say, no, you, you, you know, you can't just go faster. Right. So don't hang too much on the yes. And particularly if you have players that are like using it to try to get things, you can kind of say, no, that's not how it works. And particularly if you see that there's things in the mechanics that allow a, a certain thing, it should generally be as hard as what that thing was. Right. So, you know, modifying spells on the fly. I think you should be able to modify spells as long as like, are they getting more powerful? Right. Are they as powerful as a spell that's a higher level? You know, if it's if it's if it's cosmetic, if it's story, sure, right? Emulating feats. Well, if there is a feat, you can't do the same thing that the feat can do without having the feat, right? I mean, there's certain like the we we you know there are rules, right? This isn't nom. There are rules, right? So you know you can definitely you can definitely be free to say no. Sorry, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Dave P says, I have a story beat I don't know how to hit using D&D rules. When my PCs return from exile, oh yeah, I want to give them an option to raise a rebellion against the tyrant. I don't want uh, this to take a lot of time. I'd rather concentrate on the rebellion itself. And I was hoping to use the downtime rules to give this montage feel, but also want the players to feel the weight and impact of their actions. Are there tools, rules, or hacks that I can employ to support a thousand foot view approach to a story beat? Or will I have to rely solely on my storytelling and characterization skills? So I think... You know, always, always remember that like we want to watch the story unfold. So you don't want to get too much in the idea that the rebellion is raised by the characters unless they already know that they're doing this. Like if they've decided, hey, why don't we raise a rebellion? And then I think it's safe to use some downtime. One of the things about like avoiding this sort of skill challenge approach is that you don't know what ideas they're going to bring to the table and you want to work with those ideas. This is an area where yes and can can work really well, where the players are bringing ideas about how to do this thing and then you kind of adjudicate that particular idea and then you can watch it go. You could you could do something like a count like a, like a blades in the dark style clock where you say like, you know, full rebellion takes 8 segments. Right. And and for each of the things that you're doing to see the rebellion, it's going up a tick. And you tell me the kinds of things you want to do to increase the fire of this rebellion. Are you is the bard going to come up with a really good song? And they could they could come up with all kinds of stuff. And all you're worrying about is those that they ticks. Right. And, and again, they do something really good. And you're like, that counts for two. Right. Or they, they roll 20 on their persuasion check. That's two ticks. Right. So that's a really good, powerful, but the, you know, that the idea of a clock is a powerful one. And the nice thing is you can improvise it and you're going to want to improvise this situation too. And you can, you can go really wide and you can go really narrow. So if they're in town and they're doing stuff and they're like, well, I'm going to go from bar to bar and just hang out and, and make rebellious conversations. Like, I think the king is a real dick. Right. 
And then you say, ah, but there's one time where the king's like hired thugs grab you outside the bar and now you go and now you're in combat, right? And you can do this. You can you can expand, you can turn the dial on like the resolution. Is it really high and wide and it's in and we're covering days in a few sentences? Or are we back to six second turns in the combat? You can change this as it goes. But my big thing is to is to go with the flow, right? The, the, the mechanic, the, the you know, tool, rule, hack that I employ is go with the flow. Know, know what the goal is, make the goal clear to the characters. Right, make the goal clear to the players of what they should, what they need to accomplish to get their goal done. Right, maybe set up a clock and then ask them how they want to approach it, and then play with them. Like, oh, is there? And and you could offer suggestions. Right, here are a few ideas about things you could do. And what I've often found is if you offer up three ideas about things they could do, and you can make them relatively mundane, and then they and then they'll say, oh, what if we did this and too? It seeds their ideas, and then they come up with stuff, and then you go with that. But I think that you know, go with the flow is the tool hack and rule that I would employ for for running a scene like that. Carl S says, as a fairly new DM, I struggle with role playing NPCs. It always seems awkward and goofy. Try as I might to get inspired from other forms of media for these NPCs, it always falls flat. The more my players interact, uh, the more my role play crumbles. We are not really heavy role play group to begin with, but would love to add more. But would love to add more to my NPCs than a panic mess that usually comes out. So, yeah. So there's a couple couple answers. I know you got some good answers to this on the Patreon on, on the Patreon post as well from other from other patrons. A, you don't need to, right? You, no one should feel like you have to role play a NPC that you have to get into their voice and do it. You could instead just describe what the NPC does, right? The NPC talks to you about this, and the NPC, men, you know, this guy mentions that this thing is true and this thing is true. You never have to break third party, third, 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 you know, third party narrative, right? You, you don't, you don't have to get into the, the character and speak. You can also just kind of go with your goofiness. I, I have goofy NPCs all the time, and. By by it makes it a little less awkward, right? Sometimes it means the seriousness isn't there, but sometimes it is. And, you know, some people will be into it and some won't. If you're playing online, it's a little harder because you're not seeing the reaction of the other people. So that can be that can be kind of tricky. I just I you know, I, eventually, especially if you're with friends who love you and care about you and they're there to have a good time, they're not gonna make fun of the fact that you're doing NPC. And if it but it but you don't have to, right? Nothing you don't you don't have to role play a character. If you wanted to role play and kind of, you know, feel I don't know if this is the best way to feel comfortable about it. But again, I, I love you know, I've I've answered this before, like what's a good way to do it? And listening to audiobooks, I'm listening to one now. I'm listening to Count Zero by William Gibson. And I'm listening to the audiobook of that. And hearing the narrator get into character they're not acting but they're still getting into a voice and they're doing male and female voices and you know even though it's a guy that that is doing the narration right but you can also you know and you could switch you could do a little bit of role playing in first person and then a little bit in third person that's fine too like you know he says hey how's it going right and then you ask him and then you drop right into third person again but don't you know if it's not working it's not working and it's okay what what you do in your game isn't mean what anybody else is doing in their game is right what you're doing in your game if you guys are having fun you're doing it right so, so that works. I hope that works. Billy W says, I was wondering if you could comment on different strategies for boiling down seemingly complex or dense lore. <laughs> yes. I've been trying to take that scenario-based approach to DMing, but I found that in order uh, to do so, the kind of important to draw the players into particulars of the stories, characters, and regional history. The thing is, when you're playing with newish uh, PCs, it can be a bit much. For example, my Lost Mind of Fandelver campaign started strong story-wise, but in the entered into Defeat the Evil Wizard in the Magic Cave. It sounds good to me right? I, uh, the players couldn't retain all the details of the story at large. I don't blame them. And I feel I could have done a better job of summarizing things. You are, you are bringing up exactly, uh, why I have secrets and clues. And to me, the idea of, can you take this lore 
and break it into 10 one-sentence descriptions, each sentence that stands on their own, that are the kinds of things they could learn while they are exploring the game. And it, it helps you test whether or not they're retain what they're retaining. You can reinforce something over and over again. The cult of the dragon, cult of the dragon, cult of the dragon, cult of the dragon, right? You can bring a lot of that stuff in. But if they're not getting it and they're still having fun, that's okay, right? They're only going to get what they get. So I would not worry. So I think breaking it down into, I mean, this is why I have secrets and clues. It's why I wrote Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master was because taking big piles of lore and turning it into one sentence descriptions that you can that you can deliver i think is a really powerful tool so so billy yeah secrets and clues i think you know it's my easy off the cuff lazy answer and and you're going to have to triage right what lore is really critical that they learn and what lore is like eh, like do they really need to know all the stuff about neverwinter and the primordial that broke free and all that stuff like if they care you might have like hey this city looks like it was sundered in half and they might go why and they're like oh that was that dumbass primordial that came out a few hundred you know few few decades earlier so there's things you can do i forget the name of the primordial but right it broke out and now we blame the dwarves the dwarves the gontelgrim did it so you can you can sort of seed it in right seed in little bits but some of it just doesn't matter right the players only care about what they care about so it might be really important to you. It doesn't mean it's important to them. And you might have to, Bob, I don't think it was Bob the Primordial, I'm pretty sure. So somebody out there knows, I'm sure. And so you should feel free to, you know, feel free and you should want to look at all of your lore and clip, you know, cut to the stuff that really matters for what's going on in the adventure. And frankly, defeat the evil wizard in a cave, I think is a fine way to go. I don't, I think if the players are good with that and that's all they really care about and they don't care about why the wizard is there, who they support, you know, the connections to the drow, Megara. I knew, I knew somebody. Megara was the primordial that destroyed Neverwinter, right? Lore. That is, that is a way. Billy, hope that helps. Hey, my friend Gabor Rex says, hail to my pal Mike. Hail to my pal Rex. One of my Grendelwood campaign players has a mount with a climb speed, which is handy in caves, but I'm a bit confused with the mounting movement action rules. Yeah, I don't think I can help you with this. I, I, I put this in here. I was like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, she can use the mount's movement instead of hers and she still have her actions and bonus actions or does she have her own move speed and the mount and its movement and action help attack whatever? I have some ideas, but I'd like to hear yours. Ironically, in all these years of playing D&D 5e, no one has ever wanted wanted to use a mountain combat yeah this is interesting a lot of times i think it kind of goes with any sort of companion character i don't know the rules so you're gonna have to go look them up so i'm not and, and and i have not really had to face this so i'm not really sure i'm pretty sure your mount also has its actions it is considered another creature with its own initiative i think you can house rule that its initiative goes right after or right before the character's initiative so they can do both at the same time and that way you're not like one player's getting two full turns right I think the mount uses its movement. I think there might be circumstances where the mount can't do an action, depending on how you're how you're doing it. I think that the mount might be able to use the help action and stuff like that. But the other one is the mount is a combatant, which means fireballs can hit both of you, right? So I have a kind of a house rule that I use, which is like for a familiar. If your familiar is working in combat, that means your familiar is a targetable foe for the enemies. If you keep your your familiar out and you don't bring it up during combat, then I won't bring it up during combat. I'm not going to have you lose your mount because you got fireballed. If you don't bring, if your imp is stabbing people in the throat, it's going to get hit with a fireball, right? If I don't hear about your imp, I'm going to forget. And then we could just kind of put it out. And that's a nice way for me to be like, there's an incentive for you to not bring out your secondary creature. But it sounds like in this case, they definitely do want to have it in combat. So it is a combatant as well, which means it can be hit. It means it'll take damage from area of effects. 
stuff like that. So yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know exactly what the rules are for mounts. I'm pretty sure they exist. And, and I would, I would probably check the player's handbook and do, do, do a little bit of research to see what you can find. But I don't, I don't, I don't have a great answer. Why way, why W says, why, what else have you tried besides the adventure begins in a tavern? You talk about strong starts, but how do you think about the f that in the first game? What do you think about rolling initiative right off the bat? Like a cold open jumping straight into the action. I love it. And I've used it. I've used it, I think, for many of my campaigns where, you know, they're in the middle of a mission. They, I've, I've had one where they were like already at the end of a dungeon. I've certainly had it where they get attacked. I think every campaign that I've run in years has not started in a tavern and has instead started with a circumstance that they've walked into or that they were already going into themselves. And I think it's a great way to go. Think about every James Bond movie. Every James Bond movie has a strong cold open. And it works, right? It gets you into the action. It's like you don't know exactly. It's half the fun is like, why are we here? And why are we doing this thing? So I think, yeah, I think there's so many of them. And again, I have a full page of like 40 different strong starts in the Lazy DM's Companion. Uh, I have descriptions of it in different sort of town events that could be occurring in the Fantastic Workbook. And of course, I talk all about strong starts in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. So there's lots of lots of information on this stuff. But yeah, I, I absolutely think you can start even a campaign starting off in the starting off in the middle of the action. It's a fine way to go. Fine way to get your players interested in it, particularly if you can hit the theme of the campaign. So like when I ran Tomb of Annihilation is another example. When I ran Tomb of Annihilation, I, I began it with them hunting down the last of the Baalite cultists, right? They were... They were they were they were hunting, and it turns out the vault of the, the cult of the dead three was still around. But you know, it was like the last known Baal cultist of Baal, a cult fanatic of Baal. And they went in, that, and they were they were hired already by their quest NPC to go there at first level because it's only a cult fanatic. And they killed the cult fanatic, and the cult fanatic had written all of this stuff on the walls and all these like weird equations and math that they had done. And they figured out that like, you know, a new god is getting. Something, some powerful force exists in Schult that is drawing energy, right? And they learned this early. And then they went back with the information that ended up starting the campaign. It was a really strong start to that campaign. I really liked, I really liked doing it. That is it for the Lazy D&D talk show today. I want to thank all of the wonderful people for hanging out with me today. It's been a fantastic, fantastic show. Really interesting topics today. If you enjoyed this show, if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast, you can help me out in four different ways. First, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter and get new items of interest, new D&D tips, new articles to your inbox every week. It's free. I recommend it. You get a free, uh, you get a free dungeon toolkit for subscribing. Great, great thing. You can join the Sly Flourish patron and help me support shows like this, but also get access to all kinds of exclusive material that I put out every month, including video previews and all kinds of stuff. You can subscribe to my videos here on YouTube. It helps with, you know, we all got, we all, we're all feeding the algorithm. And of course you can buy any of my books. Uh, I have a new bookstore. You can pick that up. But if you are watching this, uh, right now on or right within April, check to see if that bundle of holding is still going. If the bundle is hold, if the bundle of holding is still going, pick up the bundle. If it's not going anymore, there is a link to my Slifler store where you can pick up any of my books. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D and D.